Oh, got a little bit of ba 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 ba. Yeah. So um. Dum 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 dum. So many, so many, so many damn books. Uh, welcome everybody to the twenty-fourth uh, episode of So Many Damn Books. I'm Christopher, and I'm Will, and Drew is absent. Uh, he is a sick. Sick man, <laughs> <laughs> and what I mean by that is he uh, he desperately wanted to come to the li- to the damn library today. He actually was texting me the day before trying to read uh, the book for this week, oh. and and saying I, I'm going to try as hard as I can, and uh, and he is incredibly depressed. He can't be here. This is the first one that he's missing. The ghost of Drew is always with us, though. Yeah, that's true. He just moved a book off the bookshelf. <laughs> There's probably some code happening here. Yeah, it's night, Phil. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, Drew is missed, but thank you very much to Will Chancellor, author of A Brave Man, Seven Stories Tall, out now in paperback. Oh, good. Yeah, paperbacks are fun, because I, I think I wrote a book for paperback people. Like I had a, <laughs> I had a never-buy-hardcover policy until I was like... 30. Right. Um, I'm 82 now. Mm-hmm. So I've been buying hardcovers for a while, but, um, but I, yeah, I don't know. Paperbacks are fun. They're much less like scary to carry around and buy. It's like less of a commitment. I always feel like I'm really plunking down for hardcover. Sure. If okay, Cupid is a hardcover, Tinder is the paperback, <laughs> right? Probably. Yeah. <laughs> you just swipe through those pages. There was a really good thing I read this, this week, um, about, uh, Justin Taylor wrote a fantastic essay in bomb, about consecution, and he linked to this uh, Lutz piece from The Believer in 2009, and Lutz uses this phrase that there are readers who are page turners and reader, readers who are page huggers, and I'm definitely mm-hmm. like of that uh, page hugging camp. So I don't know how that fits in with tender. It's probably a little bit more, o- you know, okay tender, <laughs> somewhere in between there. Wait, you, you use a word that I don't know, consecution. What is that? It's the idea that one word has with it certain, I think the phrase that Lutz uses is ejecta or something that it like kind of spits out into the next word. And Mm -hmm. so prose, and the whole essay is about the poetics of prose, but the idea being that when you're really in the moment of, you know, execution and revision, that there's an, an inevitability to the word that follows. So one word, you know, it kind of Bits forward into the next word, and that they propel the whole prose propels itself through different consonant sounds. Um, assonance is, you know, a, a big device that he talks about in that. And mm-hmm. I don't know. It's, but that essay, Justin Taylor's essay in Bomb, is really amazing. We'll uh, we'll link to it on so many damnbooks.com <laughs> for the episode notes for this episode. Yeah. Well, welcome, Will. Wow. Welcome. Thanks That's for having quite me. A, yeah. quite, um, quite a beginning. To well, this, the natural segue was, you know, a question of did you actually follow through and buy paperback books or <laughs> are you a jerk who only buys hardcover? Uh, I buy it. I buy it all. You know, I never know what I'm going to end up buying at a bookstore. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll go for I like that spirit of not having a programmed reading list. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think. A lot of times you fall into reading that's assigned to you that you have to do, things that you have to blurb or review, and um, it's it's fun just to pick something up and see where it takes you. I think a lot of those discoveries of reading through 
having my characters read through the books that I'm reading are only possible by having eclectic tastes. Mm -hmm. Like if I were only reading books that came out, then the way that my characters were reading releases from summer of 2015 would be kind of uh, monotonous, I think. Right. Um, I think one of the themes of so many damn books is you, is, is that you have to be in the mood for what you're reading. Mm-hmm. Like you, you can come to a book at the wrong time. Absolutely. And it's really, really bad to force yourself to read something. And it's that same thing when you have, like if you're trying to introduce a band to someone and you, you want to start with, probably like the best or Mm -hmm. very close to the best um that they have and or and uh start someone off that way like my my i'm trying to get my daughter into kate bush right now Mm -hmm. (laughs) so i i started her with weathering running up that hill right now no yeah exactly (laughs) no hounds of love will wait a little bit but i figured you know there's enough eclecticism in in weathering heights to where i could get her Mm -hmm. hooked on that um how's it going she digs. Okay. <laughs> she definitely digs. But it's the same, you know, I have the same thing with with Jesse Ball. Like, mm-hmm. um, and trying to s- get someone into an author that I love and, like, what's the entry point that makes the most sense? Mm-hmm. And I think it's, you know, part of it, it, when you're recommending a book, part of it is gauging where someone is in, you know, her life. But it's also trying to... Uh, trying to think you want to put the best thing out there early definitely you know um but that is a good question what'd you buy mm. uh i bought uh the uh i only bought a couple of things since last episode what restraint <laughs> Uh, believe me, it's not restraint. <laughs> if it was restraint, I wouldn't have bought anything. I have so many books I haven't read. But I bought uh, The Fly Trap by uh, Frederick, I think, Zoberg. That's good enough for, for government work. Um, it's, a, it's a little memoir about... Uh, it's uh, written by a, a fly... Uh, I don't know, entomologist? Mm-hmm. Right. And... Uh, Etymologist or entomologist? Ent- entomologist, right? And it's just a uh, the it's one of these books that the packaging is really like what caught my eye first, and then it's, gorgeous. it's a beautiful book. And you then, should spell the last name because it's yeah. There's no way anybody. Be, oh yeah, naturally that's S J. <laughs> uh, yeah, S J uh, O with an umlaut uh, B E R G, and uh, I'm very excited to read it. Um, and then I also got. This book called The Dorito Effect um, <laughs> by Mark Schatz, Schatzker, S-C-H-A-T-Z-K-E-R. And mm. it's a nonfiction book about looking at the um, scientific creation of different flavors and taste and That's looking into like how can they make nacho cheesier chips. Or colors like, yeah, this tastes like purple. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and it's a world that I'm very interested in, especially after reading... Um, you too can have a body like mine by Alexander Kleeman, which has a lot about, um, you know, manufactured flavors. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so I'm very excited. I, I love, I, I have a really bad addiction to like trying every single type of Oreo that exists. <laughs> See, I never got past Otter Pops. Like Louis <laughs> Blue is still like, every time I taste a chemical raspberry thing, I'm like, oh, there's Louis Blue. <laughs> <laughs> there, it's back. Yeah, so I'm interested to see uh, see where this all comes from. Uh, Will, what did you buy? Uh, I bought a lot. 
Um, yeah, I see you brought your stack to the damn library. Yeah, I, I walk around with a satchel like Santa Claus and just have books. And I actually end up giving a lot of books away during the course of, of a week. But um, but I kept these. I've got The Suicide of Claire Bishop by Kermile Benaski. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a book that came out on Zank that I've heard some really good things about from some readers that um, whom I trust. And I... Also bought I Love Dick by Chris Krause. There was a great review of that um, that made everyone kind of go crazy. It's like two years old, right? Or is it? Oh, I think it's even older than that. I think it's originally 97 and, and oh, Semiotex just, like oh, okay. reissued it. But mm. um, it was in, there was a there was a nice thing that uh, Men's Journal put together of writers recommending books. And, uh, and that was... A recommendation that that I I really uh, clung on to, mm-hmm. and so I decided, wow, it's kind of ridiculous that I haven't read that yet. That's a provocative title to be reading on the subway. It's the best to be reading <laughs> on the subway. <laughs> I love Dick. It was also pretty good to to wreck that in Men's Journal. Mm-hmm. Um, I also got a Kurt Vonnegut Jr. book that I, you know, it's embarrassing. I can't remember if I ever read this, but The Sirens of Titan. I haven't read that one. Um, it's. I read all of them. I, I binge read all of Vonnegut uh, my freshman year in high school, and mm-hmm. there are only a couple. Cat's Cradle I've returned to a, a bunch, but um, but a lot of them I haven't. I um, haven't revisited. Let me see if you agree with this. Um, I just read for the very first time The Crying of Lot Forty Nine mm-hmm. uh, by by Thomas Pynchon, um, and uh, I was. I I thought it was very good. At some points, I kind of thought it was just sort of. It reminded me of lesser Vonnegut in some in, huh. in a lot of ways. Well, there's definitely something going on with, um, you know, Vonnegut. To me, the the gravity in his in his physics of all his books is kindness. Like kindness is serving mm-hmm. like gravity. That it's you know, if people are uh, are unkind, then they fall. You know, and um, he he has that brilliant. Uh, video clip that you can find on YouTube of story structure, and he talks about you know the Cinderella story, and he graphs oh, different yeah. stories uh, through time, and the the you know what's determining the slope of that graph is the kindness of the characters. I think in in his work and in Crying a Lot Forty Nine, you know that that calculation is kind of absent. You know, right? You, no, d- it's paranoia. I think is really the gravity mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. in Pynchon's writing, especially in this one. Mm-hmm. Um, fully realized, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, just it, that's the thing that made the cow country discussion this week so <laughs> funny. Did you did you yeah, catch the, that? So uh, for those who don't know, uh, the a um, a pension expert came out to say that a recently released novel Cow Country was written by Pynchon underneath a pseudonym, and he was trying to uh, prove this via sentence structure and the I guess the pure existence of paranoia in the novel and. You know, thematically, I think the the theme made sense. I, I really wanted to to see more um, textual analysis right. and like something that actually, like our consecution discussion a second ago, right? Like seeing how um, you know the the word choice um, specifically 
you know, the decision to use certain words instead of others, not just like zany names, because, you know, like garbage pill kids have zany names, but that doesn't mean that <laughs> Thomas Pynchon authored garbage pill kids. It's maybe, you know, <laughs> maybe it does. Well, maybe Pynchon yeah. has a lot to do with garbage pill kids. You heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think, you know, in the, the big, to me, the, the big, flaw in that argument was Pynchon has successfully had a fully realized career of staying out of attention, you know, and he Mm -hmm. hasn't, he hasn't sought attention, but he hasn't, he sought anti-attention. And this seemed like a a very deliberate, you know, job of, of attracting anti-attention. Like Mm -hmm. I don't want to be touched, you know, and I think he would rather both of them go away. I think he just wants to write in, anonymity and right. not have any sense of, you know, being that guy. I bet it pisses him off. He's like, I don't want to be that guy who's like not participating in this, but I just want to be left alone and right. Mm-hmm. You know, and again, just sort of in that Ferrante way. Yeah. Um, that mm-hmm. Ferrante is actually very actively about. I think, yeah, absolutely. Like she's, that's a, that's a great analogy. She's, um, she's done that same thing. I don't think she really, relishes her, her, you know, her status as being an anonymous writer, but, um, but I, I think she just thinks that it's necessary for her craft. Right. I do love that thing that she says, um, I did the work already. I wrote the novel Mm -hmm. about, um, why she won't do any more press for it. Yeah. It's, uh, David Mitchell has a, has something that was really helpful for me this, this last year. He talks about the, difference between wearing his writer hat and wearing his author hat and he says that you know if he's when he's a writer that's when he's actually doing the work but then there's all of this other stuff that goes with it of being an author you know like being a responsible literary citizen and and helping generate enthusiasm for other writers and doing what your publisher wants you to do and and, you know representing and showing up and i think you know i i think that that's a real thing like it's it's a luxury to only be a writer, but I, I think the reality is that that's not something that anyone should count on. Right. Alexander Chi wrote a very interesting essay about this, looking at Ferrante's uh, reluctance to be part of this uh, for LitHub, mm-hmm. that if you guys are interested in this question, I recommend where he kind of is trying to decide how he feels and how he talks about missing his privacy yeah. in some way. And this is somebody, I mean, Alex Chi is, is number one on the literary citizen, you know, uh, index of New York, he has done so much for so many people. And, uh, you know, he just always represents He's he's always out there, you know, quick to offer advice to young writers and just mm. help people out. He's, he's really done gone above and beyond the author part of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's got a book coming out at the start of, uh, right in February next year, next yeah. year uh, queen of the night, queen of the night. Yeah. Which it sounds really interesting. It's also really big. Yeah, big old, big old novel. Yeah, um, but I'm I'm yeah, really looking forward to that. You're and I'm only, and halfway, you're only halfway, halfway through what you bought. Only halfway week. through my consumerism. <laughs> Yikes! Um, well, I got a couple of them used, so that that helps. That but, helps. Um, I got uh, a book called The Revelator. Okay. That was a direct recommendation from David Gutowski, large-hearted boy who. Uh, oh yeah. He's. You know, if he's definitely up there on the great literary citizens map, he's mm-hmm. uh, he's pretty amazing, and that's written by Robert Kloss. Uh, he said it's one of his favorite books of the year, and that's enough for me mm-hmm. um, to to go with it. And then, as a result of this uh, 
Gordon Lish consecution bomb believer discussion, I picked up uh, Harold Bloom's book, Ruin the Sacred Truths. Right. Bloom is invoked a lot in those. Yeah. It's fun. I mean, you know, his version of close reading is a little bit different than the... Than most. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, it, say what you will. Uh, the guy's a, a fantastic reader. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the last book that I got this week was Joy Williams' The Visiting Privilege. Oh, yeah. People love her. Um, I've missed a couple events. I'm actually... We're missing an event right now on on Saturday night. There's a, there's a reading going on right now. Oh, no. Yeah. But such is this life. This is what we get. <laughs> well, uh, wow. Well, you have right reading ahead of you. <laughs> the the finest of things, the finest of to do lists, I think. For this week, or for this episode, uh, you recommended the book um, "A Cure for Suicide." Not the cure, just a cure. A cure <laughs> for suicide by Jesse Ball, mm-hmm. who uh, we did talk about. Uh, Drew and I talked about uh, when he was in the morning news tournament of books uh, for Silence Once Begun. Um, but this new novel is uh, now long listed for the National Book Award. And it's a beautiful book. And I, uh, yeah, I'm, it, it was a very good recommendation. Thank you. Oh, no. It's, it, you know, he was recommended to me by my editor. Uh, my my editor at Harper, my second editor, Barry Harbaugh, um, I told him how much I loved Tom McCarthy's Remainder, and he said, well, have you read Jesse Ball yet? And mm-hmm. I, the name was totally new to me. Um, and I devoured, I, I think, you know, we might talk about this later, but Jesse Ball's books are, this is his fifth novel, and mm-hmm. I think he's 35, and I think he has about three or four books that he's written and just uh, are he's waiting, waiting in the wings, on, right? Wow. Um, and his his books, I think, are best read in in one sitting, uh, which is pretty rare. You know that somebody writes in such a way that propels you to read in one sitting, but it's also just you know the length uh, being manageable in in that amount of time is also kind of rare, mm-hmm. and. So he was new to me last year, and I read everything um, right in a row. And he's definitely one of my favorite writers. Uh, he's, I think he's 35, and just, you know, I, the, I, we need a new ceiling, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, because he's, uh, he's just killing it. Um, and this book, I think, is, we were talking about entry points. This mm-hmm. one is a fantastic entry point. This would actually be, the book that that I think to start with it's I, I say this about a lot of books as soon as I finish them but it, um, the books that I love I'm like well that's one of the best books ever mm-hmm. but like I can I can certainly say that that right now this is my favorite Jesse Ball book um, you know by a significant margin I think it integrates a lot of the themes that he uh, has written about his entire career so in in 2007 he released his first novel with vintage uh, mm-hmm. Sam D. The Deafness, and it was actually the second book that he had written. The first book that he wrote was The Way Through Doors, and then after Sam D. was published, The Way Through Doors was published, um, and then The Curfew, and then Silence Once Begun, and now A Cure for Suicide. Um, well, the, so the, A Cure for Suicide, uh, his, this recent uh, triumph, is uh mm-hmm. is about a man and a woman 
who are in a um, sort of an anonymous location, and they're called the claimant, which is the man, and the examiner, which is the woman. And the man has no memory of who he was or how to, to live in basic function, and the examiner is there to help and lead, but not necessarily give all the answers. And she, they are in a constant dialogue about how to live and how to exist. And the way that Jesse Ball writes is in these very sort of simple sentences, uh, very muted, I would say. And you really find the grittiness in the subject matter and what he's in what he's getting at which is always about memory and this this one especially is about societal constructs and how to be a good member of society how to be a bad one how to how to exist and and tell the truth and well lie. i think one of the things that he would say is that that lying is necessary to be a good member of society um right. and he talks about conditional lies and as being relatively innocent. Like mm. if, and basically that civility is a lie. Like, so if somebody comes, you know, if somebody that you can't stand uh, walks into a room and says, you know, hi, you saying hi back instead of like, you know, go kick rocks is, right. is a lie. You know, like there's, a, there's an amount of, there's a lie that just allows us to function in society. But then there's this bigger overarching lie that allows society to function. You know, like if you think about the number of people that if you're in the judicial system and you take an oath and you swear, you know, to uh, God that you will tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Uh, most of the people, or at least a significant percentage of the people who take that oath don't believe in God, but they're engaging in this performative lie in order to, in order to allow the justice system to proceed. And right. then in totalitarian states, you, you see this big lie, you know, the great lie that's the, the mortar that underpins, you know, that society is built with. And if you think about that, the physicality of lying that, you know, to me, lies are vertical. Mm -hmm. Like you, they, they, aggregate and you build on top of them as the lies get bigger and bigger. And it's, um, I, I think that that's certainly, why don't you read the, um, the flap copy right. or the, the description of, of him, his bio in the, in the back flap there. Cause I think this integrates all of the things that he teaches. So there's that, yeah, that line of, of what he teaches in, in that MFA program. Right. And and I think it's important to to say that the way that he sort of is in uh, is examining lying through this character is because this character has what seems to be no memory mm -hmm. and, and needs to be taught how to live. He is essentially a completely truth telling person because he only has one other person to contend with. Right, and so that person is asking him to 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 be very truthful with her. So she he can't really lie. Mm -hmm. He can't lie until until you know much later in the book and it's sort of interesting when he when the moment that he realizes that he has to lie is a very much it's it's a it's an examination of of what processes in life call us to lie mm -hmm. so he teaches 
creative writing in an MFA program, but his attitude is that most of the people who pursue an MFA, the problem isn't that they don't know story arcs or or how to construct, you know, characters with convincing interiority. It's that they don't have convincing interiority. So he says that the real problem is that people don't people who are pursuing writing don't think in whatever he thinks is is the right kind of way to conceive of, of writing fiction. So instead of teaching a craft course per se, he'll teach uh, he teaches a lying course, how to tell a lie. He teaches a course on creative walking. So they'll mm. walk around um, Chicago and and he teaches a course on lucid dreaming. So mm. he he thinks that these things, you know, if if you pursue writing from those angles, then then you end up with something that is more instructive than just teaching craft. So like in his lying course, um, students have to go to a friend and implant a lie in a story. So and they have to do it based on that particular person's interest. So if I've got a friend who likes to think of himself as being like um, a daring guy and likes to always take chances or whatever, then I tell him a lie about something that happened early on in our friendship. Like, oh, remember when you were in high school and you were at that party and it was totally crazy. Like there were, you know, there was, uh, there were a group of people around and they were daring you to like shoot a fireball out of your mouth with 151 and you did it. And you know, like things that are totally crazy and completely fabricated. And he, what he, he says is it's amazing how quickly, um, people agree to that lie. But then the part that he's, that he requires the students to do is to not just get the person to agree to the lie that you're telling them, but to elaborate on the lie. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think a little bit like the fiction process that you see here. There's a there's a little bit of that in his craft, and in this book, there there's a specific section where there are memories implanted of things right. that will happen, you know, in the future and things that have happened in the past, and that seems like a, a this is directly centered on his concerns, I guess, as a you know as a professor of of fiction. And and the way that he writes this book in the sen simple sentences and and uh, and the sort of teaching moments of it um, end up with very interesting um, sections where he, he breaks down not just lying but things like uh, uh, what to say when you when you meet a stranger, right? Uh, or there's this great section that I think I'd like to read a little bit of uh, where he's where. It breaks down what is expected in a marriage. Mm -hmm. So after the uh, examiner and the claimant have met a married couple, they're uh, talking about that married couple. Uh, they are married, she and the man. They are married and live together. Do you know what that means? It means that they are for each other. They possess each other. It means people should leave them alone and not interfere. It does not mean that. Some people would like it to. It means that they have declared that each has declared that the other is of great importance to him or her. Life is life. It is not the sets of rules people make. If someone were to fall in love with that man and he were to fall in love with her, he would very likely go off and leave that woman, Hilda. And the same is true of Hilda. All bonds are conditional. It is important to remember that. Why is it? Why is it important to remember that? I don't know. 
It is important because if you expect that such bonds are permanent, then you can do yourself harm when it becomes true that the bonds are not. Do you see that? The most realistic view is the safest. That is the view we take here. Yeah. So I guess first, do you agree with that? That bonds are conditional? Right. Yeah, they are. Um, But I've never heard it put like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's why I was immediately struck by it and sort of marked it down as I, I realized that I'd never really thought about what that compact means it's devastating in context you know he's he he has his memory completely obliterated and he's finally coming to terms with himself and finally developing a a rich interiority which includes love and then he's confronted with the idea that love is conditional Mm -hmm. that there isn't this perfect version of love there isn't this perfect person who you know who's going to come and save you forever it's um it's something that will always be predicated by the the circumstance and it to me i don't know i don't know how i feel about that i mean i'm i'm a i cling to these deeply romantic notions that he's tearing down but the funny thing to me is he and the the tone the tone of this book is deeply romantic like mm-hmm. he's you know there's this underpinning of just big heartedness that's happening throughout um and that's what keeps it from being heady or um i think you know pretentious right yeah i i i was thinking while i was reading this book that if i were to describe it to someone else i would say it's uh, sort of if lydia davis wrote uh, 1984 by orwell <laughs> and um at the same time, though, it's 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 simpler than that, and I think that I'm just ri- sort of saying like it's a sif- like a systems novel told with simple sentences, but it's like quieter than that. And there, there's he's doing a lot more with explaining why we have the notions that we have, but but doing it in such simple language that it just sort of slips by. And the plot to me is functioning. I think even at a richer level as far as an explanation than it is in, in Orwell, which is a crazy thing to say. But, Mm. um, and again, it's like, I'm in that honeymoon that I always have when I read a book that I love. But, um, the idea of seeding suicide to the government. So the government steps in here, whatever sort of structure they have, um, steps in and says that people who are on the brink of suicide will have their memories wiped out. They will go to this interlocutor who will then hear their case and erase their memory, you know, fog them and put mm-hmm. them in this state where they don't remember anything. Sort of reminded me of Eternal Sunshine a little bit. Yeah, definitely. But it, I don't but remember there being a really, like, a government structure no, that's no, doing no. that. And I think that, that distinction is important here. Like, mm-hmm. it's it's sort of the opposite of a biopolitical um, structure where the government controls your life. Instead, in this world, the government controls your death and that thanato-political way. And that's, you know, a crazy... There's there's the idea that a government has the ability to decide life and death, but 
or who lives and who dies, but this goes one step further and actually gives the government the control over death itself. Mm -hmm. And it's always a, an, a shadow throughout this novel. It's just, it's, it's there that this is a really horrible world. I don't know if you, there was one moment where it, it's, and like the portion that you just read, Ball has this tendency to drop devastating, uh, devastating sentences, just as little asides almost. Mm -hmm. And so in this world, there are the gentlest villages. There are these villages of people reorienting and getting their memories back. Right. And there's one line where it says, well, you know, the villages are pretty much everywhere and pretty soon they will be everywhere. The idea that the entire world, the entire landscape of this fictional world is going to be people who are driven to suicide, have their memories wiped out, and are gradually reacclimating themselves. And people who are, are moderating their experience with reality in that way. Um, to me, that's, you know, it's a quiet devastation right. throughout this. And it's interesting to kind of skip over the dystopian nature of that and mm -hmm. sort of instead focus on you know, two people or three people inside of that system that you don't even see the larger bubble. Right. That I mean, to me, this was the same review or the same reveal that happens in uh, Ishiguro's Never Let Me Go. Mm -hmm. Like that was, that's the book that I think this is the closest to emotionally for me. Like mm -hmm. the that devastating, heartbreaking impact that, that's happening at, at uh, every moment. But it's a little bit, you know, it's pushed away the same way that we, you know, we push death away and we don't really think about you know, that howling abyss on one side before we existed and the other side, you know, after we die. And the same way that we push that away, he pushes a lot of those political st structures, the dystopian political structures away, which to me makes them more haunting and more powerful and just compresses everything in this. It did make me wonder who this novel is for in, in, a, in some ways, because as far as like the literary novel goes, um, it's, it's definitely interesting, but it's, it's, it's not like a, a family novel and it's not like a relationship that you're deconstructing. He's deconstructing society as a whole and the idea of your agency towards your death and your own memory. Mm -hmm. But it's also not a science fiction novel. It's So it's very much like he plays in between that genre and I sort of wondered who, who would ever be... <laughs> You know, I mean, I, I think uh, suicides in the title. I mean, it just seems yeah. like it's very it'd be a very difficult sell for anybody. Well, I, I think anybody who loves Kafka would mm -hmm. would love this. And uh, there's that line of in, in Kafka that, you know, his, his friend or maybe it was in someone talking about the biography of Kafka. But his friend goes up and he's like, oh, Franz, you're so depressed. And he's like, he's like, don't you think that there's any hope? And, or he, and he says, oh, yeah, like there's. There's infinite hope in the universe. The universe is full of hope. There's just none for us. <laughs> and that's, uh, that to me is the universe of a cure for suicide, is that there's this broad hope, but for the actual characters in it, there, there's none. And to me, that's the most universal idea. And, and uh, I think the reason that Kafka is so resonant. Um, and the love is, you know, is always there as that great hope in Kafka. And I think it's there and there's, there's heartbreak and you know, this, I, without giving too much away, like he's had his heart just ripped apart. Mm. Um, and that's one place where I kind of see the, like 
the authorial hand a little bit. Like I trust that, you know, Ball's writing this from a place of just like raw, uh, you know, knowing exactly what that's like to, to be wrenched and, and torn into shreds. And it's, uh, it's uh, to me, th- there's no more universal uh, theme to write about than, than death and love as uh, a great metaphor of death. Like love is the way that we reenact the whole process of, of hope and death and nothingness and it's being conditional. Like, um, and I think, I think that on a thematic level, this is as universal as it gets, which is what makes this, you know, a book that I, I I think everybody should read. Mm -hmm. Well, and it, uh, you know, it was long listed for the national book award. Um, along with a lot of other amazing titles. So I don't know. It has, <laughs> I don't know about its chances because of what I was saying with it straddling sort of that genre line. Yeah. Um, um, what are you uh, recommending for people to read or take in? Well, there's, there's a book this um, this that has been at the front of my head in thinking about talking about cure for suicide. And that's, uh, a book called Metropole by Ferenc Karinthi, who is a Hungarian writer. I think it was written in 1960, uh, 1964, maybe. We could fact check that one. But um, it's a story about a guy who, who, mo- who moves to the Central European town to give a conference lecture on linguistics, presumably, and finds himself in this environment where he has no idea what the people are saying, and he's armed to the teeth with linguistic knowledge, but he can't make sense of anyone around him, and he has to try to navigate his way around this metropolitan space that is increasingly uh, dystopic while he is going through an experience that's increasingly dysphoric. Uh, I I think it's a really brilliant book that is uh, a little bit overlooked. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've never heard of it. Um, what about you? Um, I, I have been thinking about, uh, I guess ever since, um, Apple released the new iOS version or whatever, they were talking about how Siri is going to be more helpful and, uh, take more into account of you and make, and be more personalized to just you. And I've been thinking about, uh, you know, technological systems, uh, since, and there's this book that has stuck in my mind since I've read it, I think I've read it five or six times now, and uh, I've read it out Whoa. loud with somebody, and it's this book called uh, Feed by M.T. Anderson, huh. and it's a young adult novel, actually, but it's about this, uh, of course, since it's young adult, it has to be a dystopic future, um, but it's, gosh, I even think I might have recommended it on this show before somewhere, mm-hmm. uh, but it's, it's about, they put, when you're basically close to birth, they put an, a chip in your head that allows you to basically see the internet as a pop-up display huh. on your eyes. And uh, the, the protagonist goes to the moon with his friends and gets hacked by this guy uh, in a zero-gravity club. <laughs> and um, in being hacked, he also meets this girl who got the feed when she was maybe eight or nine rather than very close to birth. Got the feeds are pretty good. Yeah, right. Expression, right. Um, and so it's and so it, his experience with it is very different than hers, and they they sort of look through this very strange universe uh, that they're in through this lens, and it sort of is just a it's sort of just looking at what if we let 
technology truly and utterly take over everything and um, and how important it is in the way that we've set up our current economy uh, to be part of consumerist culture in in the internet and there's been a lot of talk since um you know there's we're we're moving more and more into a world where advertisements is the thing that pays for everything mm-hmm. um and so if you're not if you can't be advertised to uh are you worth having the internet <laughs> it's an interesting question uh and the book is far more entertaining than i'm making it seem in this uh <laughs> pitch for it but feed by mt anderson it's very funny the first line of the book is something like, um, we went to the moon to have fun, but the moon turned out to totally suck. <laughs> <laughs> and it's sort of written like that. Uh, it's, it's, it was, uh, it's an early 2000s book, but it's an incredible novel. The other, um, well, would you, do you ever write science fiction? Would you ever write a science fiction book? Uh, I, I sometimes, I've dabbled. Um, um, well, I, I think I tend to go uh, dystopia. Um, I had it's to hard say, not to. Uh, yeah, there, <laughs> there was. Uh, you made me think of this with that implant of the feed. I I was I was going to write a book a long time ago, like ten years ago, about. Um, and I'm never going to do it now. Mm. But the idea was that free you book would, idea, you guys. Yeah, free. Yeah. Anybody w- who wants this, take it. Uh, it's really bad, <laughs> <laughs> and it was also made into a movie, basically. But the idea is that you um, you're born with synthetic organs. That are more higher, that are better functioning versions of some of your real organs. Like just you have synthetic kidneys um, and a synthetic heart, just organs that that tend to fail. And um, these biological, or like these synthetic implants, cost you fifteen million dollars or whatever it is, and you have to pay off your debt to for being born societally in this in this dystopia so you wow. have to you know you there's this expiration date and if you don't pay off your uh your debt for having you know dupont's kidneys implanted <laughs> in you then then the repo man comes right wow. <laughs> to take your organs <laughs> yeah. wow. or, or they probably just expire but i like that idea of having like a ticking clock of debt you know mm. sort of built into our biological you know self um because I think we all kind of experience debt in, as being a motivating force, but right. it's in, it was interesting to me ten years ago to think about death as having some d- debt as having some sort of a uh, biological component to it that you right. could actually you know measure. I think the the other book that I've got to recommend I'm I'm wrote a book review for this one, uh, so but I I love it is Barbarian Days by William Finnegan, the memoir of a surfing life. Oh yeah, um, that was it is so impossible to capture the ineffability of that lifestyle, not necessarily that experience, but the the decision to orient your life around something that's as as meaningless, <laughs> I guess, uh, in a broader sense, mm-hmm. and coming to grips with making decisions to orient your life around something that has no real societal significance. Right. And you're talking about, uh, it's a, William Finnegan is a uh, New Yorker author who wrote this novel about a surfing life. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's, and it's about a very particular time in it. And when he was a surfer and that's, he was chasing waves. Well, the main thing, I mean, the funny thing is it's really, 
the the press was somewhat divided. Some people were like, "Well, he's coming out of the closet as a surfer because mm-hmm. he kind of." I think he said something like that, and it got uh, they pounced on that. But he's been publishing articles on surfing for the New Yorker since 1994. Right. So um, this isn't really like a revelation that he has a surfing life. But what's interesting about the book is that he's continued to make this the red thread of his life, like the one thing that has oriented everything really and in terms of making sense of his life um you know i think he's like 65 maybe 60 i don't know looks but he he uh he still surfs and still orients his life to some extent around um surfing and it's like it's such a gross word like surf talk about like <laughs> there's it's like the i don't know i don't know if a lot of people would agree the people who are into surfing would probably think of surf as the most beautiful word i don't think there's anybody who thinks it's surf i mean surf, surf sounds like a bratwurst party <laughs> <laughs> it's like yeah, let's go to let's go to john's for that surf thing it's uh I, but you know the he's able to capture the experience in a way that literally no one has ever mm-hmm. done before like there's nobody who's who's written anything that's even remotely as beautiful about um being in the ocean and and orienting your life that way as as barbarian days that's uh, i don't know i loved it i thought it was really great wow yeah I've, i would have never even considered it uh well, thank you so much for uh, filling in for uh, Drusif. Uh, Will, thanks for coming to the damn library today. Thanks for having me. This and, is great. Uh, you know, Drew should be next for next. Uh, be here for next episode, and uh, I'm not even sure we're going to be reading. But you should follow us on Twitter and uh, so many damn books dot com. So many damn books on Instagram. And if you are going to be so kind, uh, we love uh, iTunes ratings. It helps us a lot. So uh, going on iTunes and just giving us a review or actually writing us a review if you really like the show, we really appreciate it. And if you have a book that you'd like us to cover, uh, so gmail.com. Uh, we love to hear from you, even if it is not about a book, but more about, you know, something we got wrong or very right. I don't know. <laughs> uh, thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Time.